Hi, this is Annie. And this is Bridget. And you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. Listeners, it's been a while. You may have been wondering where I've been. Um, Several of you have left really sweet comments on my social media asking me what's been going on with me and why you haven't heard from me. And I've missed y'all so terribly. So I'm really excited to be talking to y'all today. Um, But I guess we should probably start with a little bit of an announcement, a little housekeeping, which is that my time at the helm with Stuff Mom Never Told You is sadly coming to a close. And Don't worry, you will still be able to hear all the kind of exciting things that I'm up to Uh, very soon. I'll have some exciting news, new show stuff happening that you will certainly be hearing all about on this very program. But until then, this is sort of my, my kind of winding down. So it's been a really fun couple of years, you know, doing Sminty. Some of y'all have been listening since before when it was Kristen and Caroline, then when it was me and Emily, and then when Annie came on board. Um, honestly, it's been such a fun thing in my life. And now I feel like I am so, so poised and so, so excited to just keep telling awesome stories about really rad ladies. And so stay tuned for new exciting news about what I'll be up to uh, very, very soon. But in the meantime, I just want to thank so many of you for reaching out while I was away. I really, really appreciate it. Also, so many of you know I had a death in the family, and so I wanted to thank so many of the listeners for really being so supportive um, with me and that. So I really, really appreciate it, and it's been such a fun ride. So let's stay tuned. Yes, it has been such a fun ride, and it's been such an honor and such an inspiring thing for me to work with you, Bridget, and I'm so excited to see what you're going to be up to. I'm so sad that you're leaving, but I'm so excited for for future projects. Um, and you are one of these these rad women that I feel lucky to to even know of, much less like know personally. So I um I'm very glad that I had this opportunity to work with you. Yeah, me too. It's been really fun. Yeah. Um, but. All of that aside, we do have uh, an episode for you. That's right. Um, Some of you who've been listening for a long time know that I created this thing on the show. I mean, I didn't create the concept, but I created the idea of talking about problematic faves on Sminty because so many of you reached out saying, oh, I love so-and-so or I love such-and-such, but I know they're kind of problematic. And so some of the problematic faves that we've, that we've, unpacked and dove into on the show of then folks like Taylor Swift, who was one of Emily's problematic faves. Uh, many of you remember my problematic fave, Judge Judy. She's still my fave. <laughs> um, and probably the most requested problematic fave that we've gotten when we started doing this series is none other than Lena Dunham. I have to say, uh, full disclosure, I think I have, I have, purposely neglected talking about Lena Dunham for a couple of reasons. One of them is, just so folks know, is that I, I've met her. I would not say that we're friends, but when I lived in New York, I would say that we ran in sort of similar-ish circles. Like, I think that's probably a good way to frame it. You know, when we've met, it's been cool hanging out with her, you know, totally fine. But it kind of made it awkward to be, you know, doing a podcast unpacking <laughs> the ways that she's problematic. And I say this because, as you know, with this series, we are all problematic. I'm problematic. You're problematic. Everyone's problematic. So the reason why we like talking about problematic faves is not to like trash people or drag people or whatever. It's to think about the ways that we can all be better. And I think that really brings us to why she is such a important figure when we think about, you know, people whose art we love, who we wish would get better. And for me, I mean, I love Lena Dunham's work. I, lo- I don't know if I should be like ashamed to admit this. Um, I think she's a really, really talented, like rare creative talent. But, you know, it's so, so difficult to constantly overlook things where you just scratch your head and say like, what are you thinking? Why would you do this? And it, it really... It's time I, I grappled with it, I think. And why not let the entire Sminty listenership in on that like awkward grappling? 
<laughs> yes, let's all grapple awkwardly together. I have to admit, I don't know much about Lena Dunham other than people on Twitter seem to very much dislike her. Um, and I had a friend who really loved Girls, the show, and I saw a couple episodes of that, and I have a weird thing about ears, and I don't know if people have seen the show, but there, she has a weird thing about ears, and it, like, really disturbed me. <laughs> like, that, it stuck with me when she had that pencil in her ear. Anyway, that's, oh, and she was best friends, I guess, with Taylor Swift for a while. I don't Yeah, they were, they were, they were buds. They were buds. That's like my my knowledge of Lena Dunham, uh, all of it. Yeah, I almost think I I was able to be a fan of hers early on because when Girls came out, I, I didn't have HBO, and so I my first introduction to Lena Dunham was the film Tiny Furniture, which I I love and I still stand for, and I think is a great a great piece of film. Um, but. When all the hoopla was going on about girls, when it was when girls was getting a lot of criticism, fair criticism about being, you know, this show about like entitled white women in New York, I missed so much of that because I didn't have HBO. I just knew of Lena Dunham as this filmmaker who I liked, and so I didn't really get this chance to explore that aspect of the criticism until later. So I kind of came through a backdoor kind of approach with her. I will say one of the reasons that I find her so fascinating is, like you said, Annie. She is this lightning rod person. And I'm the kind of person who, when a woman is, when everybody hates a woman, I'm always like, oh, she must be interesting. You know, that, that, <laughs> that always, I, I am someone who is fascinated by these really polarizing female creators. And certainly Lena Dunham is not the first filmmaker or artist or creative talent to be accused of being like a crappy person. And I think that we do give men a much bigger leeway to be crappy and to make good art, right? Like men are not just not held accountable for being crappy people the way that women are. Like that's just a a universal. Um, And it's interesting because in working, in my background working as like a social media person or a digital strategist for brands and organizations, you know, that work, you see people who leave comments on the internet, like you see their most base selves a lot of times. And universally, everywhere that I have, you know, managed a Facebook page, an Instagram account, whatever, if they do anything with Lena Dunham, pure hate in the comments. She's the only figure that I can tell you that if you post something, even something nice, you know, Lena Dunham saved a kitten. (laughs) pure hate in the comments. I shouldn't, even, I shouldn't even say that because she had drama with her animals. So I shouldn't even bring that up. That's not even, that's a bad example. But um, yeah, she like, it could be the most innocuous, non-controversial, yeah. innocuous thing. And every comment is going to be like, oh, I hate her. I hate her. I hate her. I hate her. Not just for men, from everybody. So I, she is someone who is a lightning rod, a lightning rod for sure. Oh, I would agree. Um, <laughs> I I just, every time I see something trending with her on Twitter, it's always bad. And it kind of surprises me how often, I'm, I'm not someone who's on Twitter that often. So if I see something and I notice, wow, that's happening again, <laughs> it's kind of, uh, it surprises me. Yeah, it is. Whenever you see her trending, it's never because of something good. No. I'll put it that way. I bet I bet her publicist and her team is always like, oh no, she's trending again. <laughs> like they probably get no sleep because it happens. I mean, there's a thing on Twitter that is a Lena Dunham apology aggregator where it's just a collection of it's a Twitter account that's like just a collection of kind of nonsensical things that Lena Dunham would be apologizing for. So so here's a taste of the kind of things that you would get from this apology aggregator. Lena Dunham apologizes at Taco Bell drive-thru window for claiming that Cinco de Mayo was a Mexican mayonnaise festival that appropriated white culture. So it's like these, these nonsense sort of social justice-y words kind of put together in a way that really doesn't make sense. But in the universe of Lena Dunham having to apologize for things, who knows? Because she has to apologize for things so regularly. Yeah, it, it does seem that way. And, and we're going to talk about um, some of those some of those instances where she's had to apologize. But first, let's let's talk about her past and kind of the work that she's done. Yeah, so 
like I said, I, she was one of my faves. Uh, and I do genuinely believe that she is a, a, a good artist. So a little bit about her. Uh, she got her start in creative work pretty early on while she was a student at Oberlin College. She went viral very early on YouTube um, for making this video of herself wearing a bikini and brushing her teeth in a, in, a, in a fountain, like in a fountain at Oberlin. And this video was one of those things where it became viral for people hating on it. Um, and, you know, she eventually took this video down because of all the hate that she got from the video. Rebecca Mead over at The New Yorker wrote, her blithe willingness to disrobe without shame caused an outburst of censure from viewers. Donham herself said she didn't want to Google herself and have the first hit be people talking about how misshapen her breasts were, how fat she was, and that's why she took the video down. But I got to say, I mean, that being her early foray into creative, public creative work, I found so interesting because it can be really difficult to be a woman, especially a woman that's not, you know, a size two, a size four, to put yourself out there like that. And I've always respected that she is someone who does not shrink away from using her body to tell stories about who she is and in a way that, you know, that, in a way that she controls. And she gets a lot of hate for that. And that's something that I, that I definitely, definitely admire about her because it can be hard. It can be hard. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, the, the f- couple of episodes that I've seen of Girls, I did appreciate um, kind of the courage of being authentic with her body type. And I guess not always the most flattering <laughs> presentation of um, even just her clothing choices. I remember one episode where I, she was like wearing a, a fishnet yellow top and nothing else. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I did. That was something that I thought was very, um, at least at the time, for me, unique. And I, I didn't see things like that often. Yeah, it is unique. And I think it's interesting, like, what kind of bodies we are told get to have, you know, what kind of what kind of lens put on them. You know, if if she had a different kind of body type, her being in a yellow see-through mesh shirt would not be unusual to see on TV. Right. And I think people, yeah, like, I, I think that's just really bold. And also knowing that you're going to get hate for it. Like, one of the criticisms people make of Lena Dunham is that she's always naked, always showing her body, this and that. And I just think that's really a really interesting criticism about her. Also, when she was diagnosed with um, endometriosis and got a hysterectomy, you know, if you, if you follow her social media, she's posted lots of images of her body and what that's been like for her and her body, which I think is also very, very bold. Because again, whose bodies are we told get to have a certain kind of lens applied to them? Thin bodies, quote-unquote healthy bodies, sick bodies. Like, what are the bodies that are allowed to be presented in certain kinds of light and what aren't. And she was someone, I mean, I know that there have been plenty of artists who've done that before, but for me, she was someone who really got me thinking about that in ways that I hadn't before. Yeah, I would agree. Um, and it, it is vulnerable to put yourself out there like that um, and to open yourself up to that kind of criticism. Definitely. Um, another thing I really admire about her is that her art is very kind of tends to be self-reflective. You know, a lot of her earlier work was about satirizing the art scene of which she was a part. Uh, in 2009, she had a series called Delusional Downtown Divas, which satirized a group of sort of vapid people working in art in New York, which I'm assuming that's probably not far off from her own experience. <laughs> and I, I thought that was really cool. Like, self, it, it made me think like, oh, this is an artist who is capable of self-reflection and self-scrutiny self and making a joke out of their own ridiculous life. That's something that I really like. I know that a lot of people think that kind of has its own sort of sense of narcissism with it. And maybe it does, but again, men are allowed to be narcissistic all the time. It's, we don't even question it. We don't even call it narcissism or vanity. And I think that when a woman uses her art to look within, to look at her friends, to look at her life, it's so much easier to say, oh, she is, you know... She's vain. Like, I saw this meme that made no sense on Twitter. It was a Frida Kahlo painting of herself. And the caption said, of course, the most 
one of the most famous female artists basically just does selfies. And then I was like, bull how many male painters did self-portraits? Literally, that's all they did. No one calls, no one calls Van Gogh, you know. He's so a, vain. <laughs> yeah, like, oh, what a narcissist. It's like, yeah, it's just only because it's a woman and it's associated with femininity that it gets that label applied to it pejoratively. Right. <laughs> yeah, when a man does it, it's just like, oh, art, look at this very interesting art, and it's judged in that way. But when a woman does it, it's what what problem, some problem with her that makes it all about her and not about the art. Exactly. So it was her film in 2010 that really kind of turned her into a breakout star. Tiny Furniture really pushed her over the edge. It won Best Narrative Feature at South by Southwest. Um, and it really was like, oh, it's like that, she's like, that, that film is the reason why like we really know who she is. Um, it's clearly kind of autobiographical. It stars Lena Dunham as Aura, who's just graduated from college, moves back to New York to live with her like artist mother. And it's really one of those films about mother-daughter dynamics. And honestly, like when I saw it, it I thought it was brilliant because it really did explore this feeling that you kind of have when you're maybe around your 20s, where you love your mother and you respect your mother and you admire your mother, but you also are struggling to feel separate from your mother and independent from your mother and, and figuring out who you are and sort of looking to your mother for guidance, but also feeling that tension of, I'm not my mother, even though in a lot of ways, if you're anything like me, you're very similar to her. And you know, that feeling when you graduate college and you're, that's that weird in-between of I'm not a child, but I don't feel like an adult, but I should feel like an adult because I am an adult. Like that feeling, I feel like she captured so well in a way that really spoke to where I was in my life when I saw it. And this was your introduction, like you said, to Lena Dunham, right? Exactly. I had never heard of her before. I didn't know anything about her other work. This was the first time I'd ever heard her. And I just thought, oh, what a... What an interesting and unique voice. I think a lot of people did. I think we weren't, I think that at that time in media, we were telling a very specific story about what it meant to be a woman. And I think, you know, that was this was coming off things like Sex in the City, where it was very much like glamorous white women who have glamorous jobs in the city who are figuring out life and love. <laughs> and, you know, a lot of us didn't, that's, that, I loved that show, but that experience didn't feel like my experience. And even though her work is still very much about, you know, white women, which we'll get to in a second, I that was a time where I felt, yeah, someone is speaking to what it seems like when you when you don't feel like you have this, like, glamorous life in the city. We saw shows like Broad City and Insecure really speak to that. I think that she did a good job of sort of making room for women to talk about these experiences that maybe didn't feel so great, where you did feel insecure and unsure and like weird about your body and weird about your job and weird about your friends. Um, and you didn't have to have this guise of having it all and being so polished and together. And that was okay. I think it, I think it's, I think it opened up the door to a different kind of reflection of female experiences that I was really grateful for. Yeah, and this movie is what got her the blind script deal at HBO, right? Exactly. So, I mean, one of the charges that she kind of gets, and I don't know if this is fair or not, but that she's, that it's like nepotism because her mother is Lori Simmons, who is a phenomenal, a phenomenal and very famous visual artist. And that, you know, it's, I think it's a fair question. You know, if you were kind of an unknown filmmaker, would you be able to get the same kind of platform that Lena Dunham got off the success of one film? But I mean, I, I think that's a fair question. I think Tiny Furniture was a genuinely really interesting, good movie. And so it doesn't surprise me that HBO saw her as this hot young talent and wanted to invest in her early. And I mean, she got that deal when she was very young. So I, I still think it's very impressive whether or not she, you know, it, I'm, I'm certainly sure that it helped that she is a wealthy, well-connected white young woman living in New York. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm sure that didn't hurt. You yeah, know? yeah. But, that doesn't change the fact that I think that she did make a really, really good piece of art that stands on on its own. And then after that is when things really started taking off for her, correct? 
Exactly. So the late David Carr, who many of y'all might remember, was this prolific writer in the New York Times, did this profile of her. And that was like the thing that kind of made her, like it cemented her hot, young, talented thing, you know, cred in the industry. So, you know, it was off of that piece that she was introduced to Judd Apatow, who she ended up working with on Girls. And everything sort of just like fall into place for her after that, after that article was published. And so really it's one of those stories, again, did it, did it help that she was so well-connected from her, like, family? Of course it did. I'm sure that it did. Like, let's not, let's not pretend that Lena Dunham totally, you know, pulled herself up by her bootstraps and was, you know, working in a factory and then, you know, became a, a talented artist. No, of course not. Like, that's not what happened. Um, but, you know, it was these kind of things that kind of cemented her career I think maybe it's fair to wonder if those things are deserved because of the opportunities that are certainly open to her as somebody who is very well-connected and, you know, wealthy and all of that. But that doesn't mean that she can't be talented. Like, I think both can be true. Yeah. And from all of this comes Girls, which was a very critically successful show on HBO. Uh, I remember when my friend who loved it when she was telling me about it, she said she hadn't, she hadn't seen anything like it before and that I had to check it out. And um, people were talking about it. It was a pretty big deal. It was a big deal. And I think one of the reasons why is sort of like what I was saying before is that it's refreshing to see depictions of young womanhood that are just different, you know? Like, it's, I think the more stories that we get told, the different layers, um, the better. And I think... One of the reasons why I'm so personal, I, I have such personal grappling with her is that girls really did feel like, you know, depicting a way that I felt on screen. And that's why it's so frustrating when Lena Dunham can get, she can get something so right and then get other things so wrong. It's like, I want so badly for her to be there because <laughs> I do think she's so talented. And when someone... When someone speaks to you in a way that feels like the truth, you kind of, this is, this is why like faves and stan culture and all of that is so tricky. It's so easy to sort of give yourself over to that feeling and give yourself over to them in a kind of way because they spoke to something in you. And then to find out, just like all of us, they're problematic as f They say racist shit. They say ableist shit. They say Islamophobic shit. They do things that are upsetting. They're sexual abusers, whatever. You know, finding that out feels like a betrayal because you because you kind of trusted them. You kind of allowed yourself to be like, oh, this is someone who spoke to something in me. And that's what makes it so hard. It does. I, it, this is something that I've been wrestling with a lot too, and I think a lot of us have. But it also, on top of feeling like a betrayal, it feels like, at least in my case, this is... You're connecting with someone because it feels like they're maybe telling a story that feels like your story are important to you. And it feels like it's almost like you did this terrible thing <laughs> because it feels like they're you're connecting with them as an audience member um, or as a consumer of their entertainment. And in that way, sometimes I it's the strangest thing of feeling like by liking this person and then they did this thing like, guilty by association almost. You know what I mean? Oh, completely, completely. This is why, like, in 2019, 2018, if there's one byproduct of the Me Too movement, it's that I don't stand for anybody. I've, I'm like, <laughs> I liked this movie. I liked this song. I don't know what you're doing in your personal life. I don't know. I, I don't want to, yeah. I don't want to, like, attach my, attach greater meaning to feelings around anyone. I'm like, yeah, I liked, I liked this movie. We'll see. The jury's still out. Right. <laughs> um, and I think, honestly, someone who I think really modeled this in an interesting way is the filmmaker and actress Greta Gerwig. Uh, after Me Too had a lot of actors questioning who they would work with, you know, Greta Gerwig is this amazing feminist woman filmmaker. She directed the movie Lady Bird, which was a revelation. If you haven't seen it, you should definitely see it. Would love to know your thoughts. But Greta Gerwig got asked so many times, you know, you're this big feminist, you're this big female icon in filmmaking. Why did you work with Woody Allen? And then later on, she 
said that she regretted it and that she wouldn't do it again, but that she couldn't change what he had meant to her kind of creatively and as a filmmaker. Here's what she said. Dylan Farrow's two different pieces made me realize that I had increased another woman's pain, and I was heartbroken by that realization. I grew up on his movies, and they have informed me as an artist, and I cannot change that fact now, but I can make different decisions moving forward. And I just thought that was so powerful that she was saying, well, yeah, like a lot of us, I let my feelings about this filmmaker inform my behavior. And I, and I you know, was in a movie with him and it seemed like I was co-signing his behavior and him as a, as a person. And I wasn't, and I regret that. You know, I think that the ability to do that is, it's probably awkward as f- but doing it in public, I think is really important. And I, I just really, really appreciated that she was so open about that choice and how she regretted it. And that's what I want to be able to do, to be able to examine how artists and creatives and whatever who I've really, really enjoyed, how their behavior reflects on my values and whether that's a reflection that I'm comfortable with. And a lot of times the answer is no. And I think asking those uncomfortable questions as part of analyzing, you know, problematic Daves and how we're all problematic. Yeah, uh uh-huh. Um, I think I've said before on here that I'm kind of where you are and I just, I feel like everybody now, I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop, which is a horrible situation to be in, but that's like where, where we are. Um, (laughs) but hopefully by asking these questions and by examining this kind of like art and the artist and that intersection and we can move forward and make space for new art and new artists and people that aren't doing um, such problematic things. Although I I believe we will all always be problematic to some degree. Oh, for sure. My I I've, I've said it before. My number one problematic fave is myself. <laughs> love it, love it. Uh, but getting back to this problematic fave, Lena Dunham, when Girls first came out, the first season garnered. Dunham four Emmy Award nominations for acting, writing, directing, and two Golden Globes for Best Television Series, Musical or Comedy, and Best Actress. Um, In February 2013, Dunham became the first woman to win a Directors Guild of America Award for Outstanding Directing in a Comedy Series for her work on Girls. So there was a lot of critical acclaim for this show. And then in late 2012, she signed a $3.5 million deal with Random House to publish her first book, which is an essay collection called Not That Kind of Girl, A Young Woman Tells You What She's Learned. And it was published in September 2014. It reached number two on the New York Times bestseller list in October 2014. Yeah. Have you read that book? I have not read that book. Have you read it? I have. It's good. It's good. I I completely understand why... It was so successful, um, and I, I remember there was contra- there's, it was there was controversy in the book, which we'll get to in a second. Um, I remember an early controversy around the book is that she, you know, got such a good deal. And again, we cannot divorce her success from all of the various privileges that that she embodies. Certainly plays into it, but I, for me, it's it's again, I think it can be both that the, that she's a talented writer and she's very privileged, which helped. And that's okay. Um, but, you know, as cool as it is to see a young female creative talent get successful, people are right to be critical of a lot of the things that she does. I think she gets a lot of unfair criticism, but people aren't wrong to want to hold her accountable, which I think we should talk about after a quick break. And we're back. So one of the things that people criticize the show Girls about is the fact that it is so overwhelmingly white. And there is just no getting around it. This is a thing. This is a blind spot. Um, one of, like, all of the different reasons that Lena gave for having the show be so white, in my book, completely fell flat. You know, in, in this day and age, if you are making a show, particularly a show about Brooklyn, right, and that show does not include diverse voices, like, what are you doing? Sex in the City was the exact same way, and I can sort of buy the argument that Sex in the City was trying to make New York look like this fantasy world where, 
you can be a freelance journalist in a, in a four-day Lower East Side Manhattan <laughs> apartment, you know. And a part of that fantasy is that there are no people of color. Mm. I can ma- I've heard that argument, and I can maybe, I don't buy it, but I can maybe sort of see it, you know. I can sort of like, mm, I, get, I get the argument. <laughs> yeah. uh, I've never seen Sex in the City, but... Uh, You've never seen one episode? No. <laughs> oh my God. I will say, it's a, that's another problematic fave, but it is a good show. It's a legitimately enjoyable show. I feel like I need to, I need to dust up on my... Uh, I guess, I, I'm not feminism shows, but <laughs> these big milestones and and women on television shows um, and watch Sex in the City. I think I'd get a lot more jokes. Yeah, I mean, I watched it when it was airing, when it was, you know, new. I was in high school and I understood maybe 75% of it. Um, and I would watch it with my, my friend, Kristen, who had HBO. I would go to her house and watch it. Um, yeah, I definitely was probably too young to understand <laughs> half of half of it, but watching it now as an adult, I definitely. I mean, you're watching like women who are in their 30s wrestle with things like, "Oh, am I going to be able to have a career and a baby?" And I was in high school. <laughs> I, I'm, like, you know, I'm not sure I fully understood the the nuances there. Um, but you know, so so these shows that are about four friends in New York, you know, four lady friends in New York living their lives, I. Having a show like Girls be set in specifically Brooklyn and be so lacking in diversity, I think it's just it's just not okay. And I think, you know, when that show was on the air, for part of it, I was a 20-something girl working in media and living in Brooklyn. And my experience was certainly, you know, diverse. You know, I'm a Black woman. I had friends who were other Black women. I had like Brooklyn is so diverse. It just didn't make any sense to me to be claiming to tell a more authentic story about women coming of age in New York and not include people of color. It just didn't make any sense. And it didn't make any sense to Jenna Wortham either, the host of the podcast, still processing it. She said, The problem with girls is that while the show reaches and succeeds in many ways to show female characters that are not caricatures, it feels alienating, a party of four engineered to appeal to a very specific subset of the television viewing audience when the show has the potential to be so much bigger than that. And that is a huge f***ing disappointment. Exactly. She just nails it. That's exactly how I felt, that it was disappointing that someone could authentically capture something about being a a young person in New York and then have such a huge blind spot around race and have none of these characters be representing a diverse background at all in a city like Brooklyn. Lena responded to this criticism, but beyond adding Donald Glover to the show for a few episodes, nothing really changed. And she said, I take that criticism very seriously. She added, something I wanted to avoid was tokenism and casting. If I had one of the four girls, for example, if, for example, she was African-American, I feel like not that the experience of an African-American girl and a white girl are drastically different, but there has to be specific specificity to that experience that I wasn't able to speak to. I did write something that was super specific to my experience, and I always want to avoid rendering an, an experience I can't speak to accurately. So basically that's saying, well, I'm a white woman. How could I ever w- write about people who aren't white women? I, I completely do not, do not buy... I, I see where she's coming from. I just do not buy that explanation at all because she writes male characters. She's not a man. She right. writes characters who are parents. She's not a parent. There are so few things where you would accept, you know, I write about my experience and I can only... I cannot, I cannot even fathom writing about something that's not my, my own experience. You know, she, she does it on the show. And so <laughs> I just, I just like, do not buy that at all. Another thing is, a, like, writing a show is a team effort, you know? If you, if you want to, if you do want to meaningfully engage with a different experience, add more color to your writer's room. Get different kinds of faces, you know, at, at the table. But she didn't do that. Her writing room was notoriously white. And so it just seems, you know, there, there is a way to rectify this situation, and she just didn't. Yeah, if you're so uncomfortable writing... For someone who's black, then you could hire someone to do it. And then she didn't do that either. So, yeah, there, there, was a, there were things she could have done, and she did not do them. Exactly. So on the wave of this, this series of criticisms, um, people, a lot of black women, really started to 
push back against this depiction. Um, Zenzi Clemens, who is a Black female writer who was working for Lena's publication, Lenny Letter, um, which shuttered earlier this year, she quit publicly and accused Lena of, quote, hipster racism. Clemens wrote, she and I ran in the same circles in college. I avoided those people, Lena and her friends, like the plague because of their well-known racism. I call their strain hipster racism, which typically uses sarcasm as a cover, and in the end, it looks a lot like gaslighting. It's just a joke. Why are you overreacting? Is a common response to these kinds of statements. And boy, howdy, do I know that vibe very well. That's sort of a new thing where the person, I, I almost don't, I don't know where this attitude came from, but I've certainly experienced a lot where people act racist or anti-Semitic and then it's, you know, oh, I'm just joking, wink. Like, it's right. really difficult to tell. And so it's like, are, it, it's, it's, gaslighting is the term for it because it just is really, really confusing and it's just unsettling. Yeah, that, that sounds like if Gaslighting 101, raising a legitimate concern and then being dismissed as if you're the one who is acting out of turn. Exactly. So another kind of very weird thing that happened that Lena had to apologize for was, do you remember that weird thing with Odell Beckham? I do not. <laughs> Please oh tell gosh. me about it. <laughs> it was just, just very f- weird. Like, I just feel deep, like it was just deeply, deeply strange. So in 2016, Lena Dunham went to the Met Ball, which if you know the Met Ball, it's this thing where all the fancy, rich, you know, well-connected people all get invited by Anna Wintour from Vogue magazine to this ball. And you're all supposed to dress kind of, people, it's like people dress, what you wear is very important to this thing. Like it's like a, a whole thing. And so Lena went dressed in, I think, like a tuxedo or a suit. And she was sitting next to the, the football player, Odell Beckham Jr. Now, she claims that he, like, I mean, I'm not even really sure what she was trying to, what she was trying to get at. Basically, she accused him of disregarding her because she was dressed in a suit, because she's not a size two, because for whatever other reason... Because he sat there at the table and, like, looked at his phone and didn't engage with her. And really, when you step back, what she is saying is that, oh, somebody just, like, sat at a table on their phone and didn't engage with me. Therefore, they must be a misogynist. Like, she was really projecting a lot of malintent on someone who was just, like, minding his business at a table, like, doing nothing. And it just was really, 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 really strange. Like, that's the only thing I can think of. It's like, part of me kind of felt for her in that moment because I'm someone who can kind of get in my own head and be like, oh, everyone is annoyed at me because they're being quiet and really they're just being quiet. I know what what it's like to jump to unsupported conclusions about the behavior of someone else, but really it was in your own head. I, that is my, I've, like, guilty as charged, I do that all the time. So part of me understands it, but to say it publicly right. about someone who just was just doing nothing is just so, it's almost, unfathomable, it's almost unfathomable to me. Yeah, I mean, hearing this from you, it sounds, <laughs> it sounds like a, just a normal thing happened that you're sitting at a table and someone's doing their own thing. And then... <laughs> to post about it, uh, I'm assuming she said something like on social. Uh, yeah, that's very odd indeed. Yeah, so she apologized. Um, she said, I would never intentionally contribute to a long and often violent history of the oversexualization of black male bodies, as well as false accusations by white women toward black men. Um, yeah, so. Honestly, this is like one of those things I don't even know what to make of it because it's so strange. I guess she, and she doesn't know me. Maybe Odell Beckham was, is awkward or like an introvert and just like wanted to be on his phone to put this weird, like, it's just such a weird projection to be that, oh, because he wasn't ogling me, he's a misogynist. It's just, there's so many layers to how strange it was. Really, like, that's all I can say. Like, there's just so many layers to how weird of a thing this was. 
Yeah, and if he had been ogling her, then it would have been bad as well. I really think, in my heart of hearts, most of the time, people are not thinking about you at all. And so <laughs> they're, they're, they're worried that you're thinking about them. You're worried that they're thinking about you, but you're really just all thinking about ourselves. That, that's what I think. I agree, yeah. There are times where I leave my house and I'm thinking like, oh, I haven't showered. My hair's a mess. Like, I look a mess. And then when I get outside, I remember, oh, everybody, we're all vain narcissists. We're all just worried about ourselves. Nobody nobody is looking at me. Nobody cares. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. That is, uh, that is a good piece of advice to, <laughs> to navigate with through this world. So another weird thing that happened was, so I know you haven't read her book, but in her book, there's this passage that was really, really controversial. Um, in her book, she describes in a passage an experience with her sibling, Grace. She writes, One day, as I sat in our driveway in Long Island, playing with blocks and buckets, my curiosity got the better of me. Grace was sitting up, babbling and smiling, and I leaned down between her legs and carefully spread open her vagina. She didn't resist, and when I saw what was inside, I shrieked. My mother came running. Mama, mama, Grace has something in there. My mother didn't bother asking me why I'd opened Grace's vagina. This was within the spectrum of things that I did. She just got on her knees and looked for herself. It quickly became apparent that Grace had stuffed six or seven pebbles in there. My mother removed them patiently while Grace cackled, thrilled that her first prank had been a success. Now that passage to me reads as a bit strange, but I also can read it as, you know, kids exploring each other's bodies. Like this happened when Lena Dunham was seven. Mm-hmm. But uh, it got picked up by this, this uh, right-wing outlet who did kind of tweak the passage. So they misreported her age when this happened as being 17 and not 7. Uh, and so again, even though I'm, whether or not you see this, this, this criticism of this passage as fair or not, it does need to be told that like a right-wing outlet, Truth Revolt, they aggregated this, this content to make her look worse. And they're not just, you know, neutral parties here. The columnist who, who aggregated this, Kevin D. Williamson, you might remember him as floating the idea that women who get abortion should be executed for saying that trans actress Lauren Cox is, quote, not a woman. Like, he's not a, just a concerned party lifting this to the masses. He certainly would be doing so with an agenda. And so... Whether or not you believe that that passage is does describe Lena Dunham molesting her sibling, it like just in terms of the logistics of what happened, it did originate with this kind of shitty right wing blogger. I uh, that was news to me when um, you you were sharing this research because uh, I have again I've seen on Twitter sort of these lists of like why to hate Lena Dunham. And on there is always she. Actually, I think I usually see she molested her cousin. But anyway, somebody related to her. Um, and uh, I didn't know <laughs> that a right wing outlet was kind of behind at least um, getting it a lot of really negative attention. Yeah, and I think there are people who I respect and trust who believe that this is an this is an encounter that describes child molestation. I'm not, I'm not saying one way or another whether it is or not. I'm saying, you know, if that is a claim that you hold, you should know where it originated. And so, you know, I, I think that also, I think uh, Lena's sibling has been very clear that they do not feel that they were molested. And so I think that's part of it too. And sort of, you know, understanding, I don't know. I just think that when we're talking about something like child molestation, it's just so important to do it in a way that's nuanced because it's such a sensitive, heavy topic, you know? Yeah, yeah. So all of these things, I remember when they were coming out, I was still, I hate to even say this, y'all are going to hate me. I was still sort of thinking, you know, I still like her. I don't know. Like, she's a, she's a cool artist. I was really able to somehow still watch girls, still be interested in what she had to say, still read her writing, all of that. I was still very interested in what she was doing. But if you saw the news this past week, She's, I think that we've, I've crossed over into territory where I don't think I can ride with her as an artist because her behavior has become so indefensible. 
And that is that when one of the writers on Girls, um, Murray Miller, was accused of sexual assault by actress Aurora Perrineau in 2012, Lena really had the worst response that I could ever even imagine. And that is really saying something. And so we're going to get into that after a quick break. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. So here's what went down with these allegations. This actress filed sexual assault charges against former girls writer Murray Miller, saying that he raped her in 2012 when she was 17. Now, in response, Lena and her co-showrunner, Jenny Coner, sent a statement to The Hollywood Reporter, basically saying that they knew they had insider information that this didn't happen. Here's what they wrote. During the windfall of deeply necessary accusations over the last month in Hollywood, we have been thrilled to see so many women's voices heard and dark experiences in this industry justified. It's a hugely important time of change, and like every feminist in Hollywood and beyond, we celebrate. But during every time of change, there are also incidences in culture in this enthusiasm and zeal taking down the wrong targets. We believed, having worked closely with him for more than half a decade, that this is the case with Murray Miller. While our instinct is to listen to every woman's stories, our insider knowledge of Murray's situation makes us confident that, sadly, this accusation is one of the 3% of assault cases that are misreported every year. It is a true shame to add to that number, as outside of Hollywood, women still struggle to be believed. We stand by Murray, and this is all we'll be saying on the issue. That is so f***ed up. I remember when I read that, thinking, oh, she will never come back from this. Like, that is... Just beyond. And I think I've said it on the show before. If someone, that, if someone that I knew was accused of sexual assault, I mean, I'm not with them 24-7. I don't, I don't spend every waking moment with them. If someone that I really, really liked ha- was facing those allegations, I would be like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I just, it's just so wild to me to say, we know without a, without a shadow of a doubt that this woman is making it up. Yeah, that we have insider information, which I'm not even sure what that would be. Um, yeah, I I remember when this happened, and it was disappointing to see someone who, in theory, is a feminist and stands for women and is um, a champion for women... I uh, like even in theory, even kind of like tangentially, um, s- just dismiss the accusation of of a woman um, and say, "Well, I like this guy. I know he wouldn't do it." Um, it was disheartening. Yeah, that's basically what she said. She later tweeted, "I believe in a lot of things, but the first tenet of my politics is to hold up the people who have held me up, who have filled my world with love." Barf. I mean. <laughs> Honestly, I always go back to Robin Wright from House of Cards, who I think gave us the definitive way to respond when a coworker is accused of sexual assault or misconduct. She was basically just like, I don't know him like that. I don't even, she said, I don't have his phone number. We're, we are coworkers. We're, we're not friends. I have no information. I don't know. You know, you can, just, you can just say that. You don't have to die on this hill of supporting someone that you, you've, even if you work closely together, even if you're friends, you don't have to do that. No, no. And I, I definitely think doing, like, this public statement, I don't, that doesn't seem, like, necessary at all. And you don't have all of the facts. And to publish this thing that's basically discrediting this woman just seems totally unnecessary and, like, misguided. So this month, Lena, while speaking at a women in entertainment event um, this month, she brought Perino's mother on stage to deliver an actual apology for her role in these allegations. It just was really awkward. I mean, I, I the whole the whole thing it was just awkward. It was awkward to have her mom on stage. Honestly, it felt awkward to me to do this at a big public event. I, I don't know. I just, I felt really, really strange about the entire thing. Yeah, I, I 
<laughs> strange is a good word for it. it. This sort of public display, it, it doesn't feel like the right time or space or like it wasn't handled very well. Exactly. She also apologized in a written piece in The Hollywood Reporter. She wrote, I made a terrible mistake. When someone I knew, someone I had loved as a brother, was accused, I did something inexcusable. I publicly spoke up in his defense. There are few acts I could ever regret more in this life. I didn't have the, quote, insider information, I claimed, but rather blind faith in a story that kept slipping and changing and revealed itself to mean nothing at all. I wanted to feel my workplace and my world were safe, untouched by the outside world, a privilege in and of itself, the privilege of ignoring what hasn't hurt you. And I claim that safety at cost to someone else, someone very special. So I think her apology is, is worth reading in its entirety. But the thing that I cannot get over is that she is admitting that she lied to make a sexual assault victim's story less believable. Like that is, like her, her apology, I think is interesting and like worth a read. But that is the only nugget. Like, like when people were reporting about this story, the way that it should be framed is that she's admitting that she lied to smear a sexual assault victim. Like that is just, I, can't, I almost can't even wrap my head around it. It's such a despicable thing to do. Yeah, when you put it in in those terms, which is what it is, it is awful. An awful thing to do. It's, yeah, and I think, again, the fact that she, so if, if she had just said, I believe, Mur- I believe Murray and we're buds and that's all I'm going to say on the subject, I wouldn't have been happy about that. But that would have been a thing that people do, right? Like, I, that, would not, that would not have been the way that I would want her to handle it. But I would have understood that. To lie on his behalf, I think is, like, what she didn't have to do. I, I don't understand why she did that. I don't understand why she pretended that there was exonerating information that they were privy to that we didn't know about um, that got him off the hook. I don't understand why she felt the need to do that. Other than... I mean, she's, she sort of goes into it more in her piece that, that she sort of had internalized this idea as a, as a victim of sexual assault and rape herself. She had sort of internalized this idea that she needed to believe that her, the community of people that she, had put, that she had put around her was safe. And so this lie was actually a tool for her to believe that she had b- built a safe space for herself and her community. And if she took that lie away, then the entire house of cards comes falling down and she realizes, oh, I have not built a safe community, the one that you know I, I wanted to build as a survivor of sexual assault and rape. And again, I can understand that, but what the f***? It's just so, it's just so horrible, you know? I am a survivor of sexual, sexualized violence. I cannot imagine lying for a sexual abuser because of my trauma and past pain. Like, that's just so... And yeah, I guess it is the ultimate privilege of throwing someone, who, who I might add is a Black woman, the woman who is making these allegations is a, is a Black woman. I guess that is the ultimate privilege of saying, you know, my comfort my ability to feel safe trumps anything that anyone else might be going through, and that needs to be protected at all costs. Right, and that this person, the the person who was accused, is a friend of mine, and I care about this person, and the other person I don't know or I don't care about, and so I'm going to protect people in my circle instead of doing the thing that is that is right and... I mean, the values that you would purport to have that it seems that she purported to have. Right. And this is what I always come back to. None of us are perfect feminists. I'm certainly not. Never claim to be. So we all, you know, we all need to be generous with each other because we're all learning and growing together. But where do you draw the line? How many times do you need to be shown someone's behavior 
over and over and over again until you say, this is not a person I can rock with. This is not someone who is down for me. And if they're not down for me, I can't be down for them. You know, I don't have the answer. That's a question I'm asking now. Because it feels like for me, this is it. You know, I just can't even imagine what it must have feel like for this, this young woman, Aurora, to see these well-connected, you know, white women just circle the wagons around her abuser. Like, I can't even imagine what that must have felt like for her. And, yeah, I mean, really, this is, this is revealing that I, you know, that my problematic fave is myself, you know. I wanted to believe that Lena Dunham was better than this. And I wonder, like, did, did, am I giving her more leeway because, like, like, why am I willing, why was I willing to give her that space to grow and shape? Like, who, who, gets, who gets endless chances? In life, who is afforded endless, endless chances to get it right? Endless chances to learn and grow? And who just doesn't have that open to them? Like, these are the questions that my feelings around Lena Dunham have really sort of sparked. Those are those are deep questions, and uh, I don't think there are any easy answers. And it involves a lot of um, introspection. I think that a lot of us are doing. Um, and it's it's it sucks. It sucks. But uh, yeah, there aren't any. There's no endless chances in life. Yeah, this is this is feel this feels so messy and unresolved. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, it does. It is. That is the way of a lot of things in life. Um, and I think we try to tie tie things up neatly with a bow, and then it feels like I can say that I can feel this way about myself, and I can feel good about myself and the choices that I've made. Um, but life isn't that way. And uh, to to take away that nuance, I think, does a disservice, even if it. It is so much nicer <laughs> if it's things so are much simpler. Nicer. Yeah, it's so much nicer. I would yeah. love to have things wrapped up in a in a bow and say, you know. But I also, I mean, I I almost hate this expression, but cancel culture, like this idea that we cancel people, like that person's canceled. I right. hate that because I don't think that does us any good, right? Like I don't want to. I don't want to. If I screwed up in public, which I'm, I certainly have done. I certainly will do <laughs> more of. I don't want people to throw me away and cancel me. You know, I think I've got something valuable to say. If someone who is a creative talent or is valuable or can, you know, make something meaningful messes up, I don't think that we should be saying, you know, uh, to a a point. Like, let's not get, let's not get out (laughs) of pocket. But, you know, I'm not a fan of a culture that is so unforgiving that says that we need to throw people away when they disappoint us. But... How many chances do people need? I mean, there's that great, there's that great Maya Angelou quote that I always come back to. When people show you who they are, believe them. And, you know, there's wisdom in that. There's wisdom in saying, yeah, this person has shown herself to be someone who does not get it and will maybe never get it. And what do we do with that? Uh, I wish I knew, Bridget. <laughs> I wish I knew. So in conclusion, it sounds like this is a problematic fave that is no longer <laughs> a fave for you. She's, I mean, I wouldn't, it's so, and also it's awkward because I, I've met her. And so I, when I was putting together this doc, I was thinking everything that I said in this podcast, if given the chance, I would say to her over coffee to her face. Again, not that we're friends, but I don't feel like I'm saying anything out of pocket. This is just how I feel. And so I can find some wisdom in this. It's important to know when to let things go. And as I'm leaving Sminty, I think it's shown me that there is power and grace in knowing when you've outgrown something and you need to let it go. And I think perhaps for right now, my favoritism with Lena Dunham, her being a bit of a fave of mine, it might be time to let it go. You're so wise, Bridget. <laughs> I mean, I hear "Let It Go" and I go right to Disney songs because I'm so immature. <laughs> but you're you're spouting words of wisdom. <laughs> you know. 
Maybe I'll get there one day. Frozen is okay, too. If that's, if that's what you got in you, that's allowed. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Everyone's cursing my name for, like, even bringing up the ghost of that song. I know uh, somebody's out there listening with their kid in the car, and yeah. that kid's going to be singing Let It Go, I guarantee you. <laughs> Apologies on my behalf. I know I one time had a child staying in a hotel room next to me and was just belting that song over and over and over again. So... I understand, and I'm very sorry. <laughs> but I think um, as unresolved and messy as this is, it about brings us to the end of this episode. It does. It does. It feels cathartic. I've been wanting to talk about Lena Dunham on the show forever, and it feels, it feels like a weight has been lifted. <sighs> <laughs> I'm glad. I, uh, when you sent the, the topic suggestion, I was like, ooh. <laughs> interesting. This is going to be an interesting one. Uh, but I'm glad we tackled it. I'm glad that you got to sort of explore and have this space to grapple with your feelings about Lena Dunham. That's right. Yes. So... If you would like to find Stuff Mom Never Told You on social media, you can. Um, you can find us on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast and on Instagram at Stuff Mom Never Told You. You can also email us at MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com. And if you want to find Bridget, where can they do that, Bridget? If you want to keep up with all the things that I got going on in the last my last few episodes of the show, you can find my social media. I am on Instagram at Bridget Marie in D.C. That's D.C. like the city. And I'm on Twitter at Bridget Marie. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Trevor Young, and thanks to you for listening. 